You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Mosul and the Islamic State. My entire life and those of my generation and every generation that came after that has been defined by trauma. Tonight, the battle has been joined. I have returned to that place in my mind many times over the years. I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. And yes, it created monsters, but also it attracted monsters. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. The United States and our allies have prevailed. We felt for the first time, Haroro, something called freedom. And then, tragically, you had the firing of the Iraqi National Army without any instruction about how they would be provided for. Something else started to happen beginning in the middle of 2003. It became clear that a particularly sinister force had entered the arena. If we succeed in dragging them into sectarian war, it will become possible to awaken the inattentive Sunnis. We couldn't have known that this Jordanian, this guy Zarqawi, would transform everything. My name is Omar Muhammad. I was born and raised in Mosul. It's my city. When it was captured by Daesh in 2014, I wrote from the occupied city under the pen name Mosul I. So much has been said about Mosul and the Islamic State, mostly by people outside the city. Now, with my co-host Haroro Ingram, and thanks to the program on extremism at George Washington University, we will tell the untold story of Mosul and the struggle of its people this story will be told to you by those who were there, and most importantly, by Maslawis themselves. Episode 2 Opportunity is Lost Part 1 Democracy Let's begin by setting the scene for our listeners. U.S. military operations in Iraq begin in March 2003, and by May, not even two months later, Mosul has its first elections, the first major city to do so, and a civil administration is established. While this is going on in Mosul, we have, beginning in mid-May of 2003, the disastrous rollout of debathification. Its direct and indirect consequences are having these devastating ripple effects through Iraq's economy and society. To this already volatile mix, horrifying terrorist attacks begin in August 2003 and continue month after month, killing and injuring dozens, but no one claims responsibility. Then, Sakawi's letter to al-Qaeda leaders is captured in January 2004 and is filled with outlandish claims, first and foremost, that he is responsible for 25 attacks and that this is only the beginning because Zakawi intends to completely transform the war in Iraq by triggering a triangular conflict between coalition forces, Iraq Shia, and Iraq Sunnis, to plunge the latter into crisis and force them to support his group over all others. At the time, it was absurd. Zarqawi and his group were barely known by Iraqis, but the truck and suicide bombs continued. In April 2004, Zarqawi made his first official statement 
declaring that his group, then called Tawhid al-Jihad, was responsible for all these attacks since August 2003. It still seemed absurd, but the attacks continued through 2004 and 2005, and those unlikely plans in Zarqawi's letter were soon the reality before our eyes. Jordanian embassy warning the bombing of the UN headquarters in Baghdad killed at least 20 people and wounded 100 others. The murder of these innocents as a propaganda device is disgusting to civilized people everywhere. Alongside this violence, we also see all the hallmarks of the early phases of an Islamic State insurgency campaign. Officials and security personnel are assassinated. Guerrilla-style attacks on military forces begin to escalate, and the bombings just continue. In a little more time, in pockets where Zarqawi's forces feel most comfortable, they begin to control the night. And with more time, and more violence, control of the night extends to dawn, and then dusk. I lived through all of this, and as a civilian, just trying to live your life. Everything felt like a trap. You walk past a car, and you think it might explode. You would pass the person, and you think they may explode or pull out a gun. And others are looking at you thinking the same thing. With each new attack or propaganda message, we also feared reprisals, whether it was from Shia militants, Iraqi security forces, or coalition soldiers. And people need to understand that Zarqawi's Tawheed wal-Jihad, as his group was named uh, and called back then, they were using violence in a crude and brutal way. But behind the scenes, they were applying a more sophisticated weapon, politics. In Nineveh province, they were trying to build relationships with tribal leaders. They are recruiting people too. They are looking to recruit young men with no jobs and people with no hope, but a lot of fears, and a lot of anger. They were recruiting them to join their insurgency, and it is this combination of alliances with the tribes and other insurgent groups, but also recruiting everyday people to strengthen and expand their ranks. That is all happening under the surface. And our listeners need to appreciate that those activities are shifting the momentum of that local grassroots competition away from the government and towards the jihadists. Allegiances are shifting. But everyone is focused on the violence. And the violence is not just car bombs and guerrilla attacks. In May 2004, the American Nick Belt is behaving. There is no justification for the brutal execution of Nicholas Berg. The killing of Nick Berg was horrifying and captured the world's attention. But remember, Iraqis were regularly being killed in the same way. The picture that our listeners should be building in their minds now is of a multi-front and multi-effort war. Horrific violence not only weakens the enemy and scares people, it incites violence from others and so helps to fuel the conditions that Zarqawi thinks will be necessary to force Iraq Sunnis to support his group over all others. Meanwhile, Tawhid while Jihad are politicking. They are building alliances so that within two years, it is now looking more like a conglomeration of groups and factions and tribes that they have been able to bring under their umbrella. 
it's also important to understand that Zarqawi's ideology, the basic elements of his extremism, exploited religious ideas and beliefs that were already present across Iraq thanks to Saddam's uh, regime's religious agendas and the efforts of groups like, I mean, just to give an example, the Muslim Brotherhood. It didn't fall from the sky. Regimes, even Saddam Hussein promoted this ideology. Saddam University for Islamic Sciences, right? This is where al-Baghdadi studied. All the Arab regimes, all of them, at one point or another, promoted the Muslim Brotherhood, promoted Salafism, promoted Salafi jihadism against the other guy. That was Alberto Fernandez, former coordinator of the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications at the U.S. State Department. I think that we need to add another layer to our understanding of what is going on here, because the jihadists are not just exploiting ideas and ideological beliefs. They are exploiting political differences among us, the Islamists. In episode one, we spoke about the Islamist bloc in Mosul politics at the time. Those people who want their particular interpretation of Islam to inform Mosul and Iraq's social and political future. Within this block are a lot of different opinions on what that should look like in practice. You have those that support democracy and the democratic process, and you have others who are completely against democracy and want radical reforms, and others who fit somewhere in between. Our listeners will remember from episode one that in Mosul, the Islamists were the best organized political actors post-Saddam, and so were, in a sense, ideally positioned to mobilize for those first elections. There were other Islamists, of course, who were against participation in democracy. And as the crisis in Iraq grew, the tensions within this Islamist bloc in Mosul and Nineveh worsened. Here is Rasha Alakidi. We wanted to be part of the political process. And this was the split that happened. And it was this split that was exploited very cleverly by Al-Qaeda, who at the time was began to be very active in Iraq. They noticed that the, the Islamists in Minoa were dividing between groups who did not want to be part of the political process because they thought it was bogus, they thought it was um, it stood against everything they believed in, it was very anti-Sunni, it was very anti-Islam, uh, and others who maybe were not happy with it but thought that they needed to change it from within, that they would enter the political process. So these were the opportunities and challenges playing out at a local level in Mosul. There are those who want democracy, a civil administration that is trying to address Mosul needs and establish itself as legitimate. But there are increasingly splits, especially among us, the Islamists, that are being exploited through jihadist politicking. It wouldn't take long before these splits in Mosul would be exploited by the jihadists with violence. We need to now move back out to the national level again because through 2004, the US-led coalition is increasingly looking to establish the central authority in Baghdad and maintain security for a successful January 2005 election. Consequently, support to grassroots local democracy efforts become a lower-level priority. So now the local civil administration in Mosul and Nineveh province is facing all the challenges of governance amidst a war, as well as confronting the effects of debathification 
and jihadists actively seeking to undermine them and establish a shadow government. While the United States was busy with securing Iraq militarily and politically, they were missing all of these things. And the people of Mosul, especially those who spoke out, who, 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 who came to speak, who met with the U.S. authorities in Mosul, they were trying to explain this to them. But no one would listen. No one would hear because they would never understand such complicated context. Let's turn to that grassroots local level competition between the jihadists and Mosul's civil administration because it plays out on several fronts. There is this competition in political outreach efforts to, for example, the tribes. There is the competition to be more effective in governance efforts by providing for the population's needs, whether those are basic services, security, conflict mediation, or a variety of other governance functions. I mean, this really was a to and fro struggle, even if either side wasn't entirely aware of what the other was doing. At the moment, such kind of meetings were happening to establish democracy in Mosul. There were other meetings were happening also to establish the jihadi movement in Mosul. While the civil administration was giving too many promises with no clear vision of how to achieve these promises, the jihadi movement was getting stronger and here comes also the rule of the debathification horror and the dismantle of the army. The tribal leaders, as well as another important element here, the Kurds. The Kurds started seizing villages that they called or claimed that Saddam have seized them from the Kurds and Arabized them. So many tribal leaders, many tribes, were actually deported from their areas. And when they came to the civil administration, calling for the civil administration to help them to take back their villages, that was the big challenge. Were they able to give their villages back to them? The answer was no. Who was able to give them the promise and at the same time achieve it? The jihadi movement. What was the propaganda strategy used by the jihadis at the time? I mean, was there a particular theme to their messaging? What made it impossible and difficult for the civil administration is that this concept of betrayal or betrayers or the treason became the norm in the city because the Ba'ath members as well as the jihadis what they worked extensively worked on in the very beginning, they made sure to inject this concept in the society, which is if you are working with the Americans, no matter what kind of work you are doing, you are a politician, you are trying to build a civil life in the city, you are a legitimate target. So far, we've discussed Zarqawi's local-level strategy, that house-by-house, street-by-street approach. But at the same time, he is trying to generate a global appeal, especially through propaganda beamed around the world on news channels, but also on burgeoning online jihadist networks. And he's attracting foreign fighters. 
In October 2004, Sakawi pledges to bin Laden and formally changes the name of his group and it becomes commonly known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Almost a decade later, in 2013, when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi announced the establishment of the Islamic State in Iraq and al-Sham, one of the group's many name changes over the years, he reflected on Zakawi's decision to join bin Laden, recalling that Zakawi had explained, When I gave allegiance to Sheikh Osama, I swear by God I didn't need from him money or weapons or men, but I saw in him a symbol for the Islamic community to support the religion of God Almighty. So I became under his command. Meanwhile, those local grassroots democracy efforts in Mosul that emerged very early after the fall of Saddam and so Mosul became the first major city to hold elections less than two months, as I mentioned earlier, less than two months after US-led military operations began in 2003. They are now facing obstacles after obstacles. Their task is hard enough, but it's being made harder and let me be clear, those involved in the civil administration were not perfect. Just like those who were involved in Moses democracy efforts were from a range of different backgrounds and had mistakes along the way. But they were trying under very difficult circumstances. The polls have now closed in Iraq. Millions of Iraqis brave danger to vote in their country's first free elections in a half a century. Nothing was going to keep them from the polls. Millions of Iraqis headed out to vote, in spite of bombings and several mortar attacks. After 2005 elections, the new central authorities in Baghdad, along with the U.S.-led coalition, were struggling to implement what was a very top-down, centralized, Baghdad-centric strategy to stabilize Iraq. Here is former Prime Minister of Iraq, Haider al-Abadi, reflecting on exactly that. What they had uh, post-Saddam was not very clear, even among the U.S. administration. And I think that was a huge fault. They thought uh, Iraq uh, is very welcoming. They thought uh, it's very easy transition from dictatorship to democracy. Don't forget, Iraq was under a ruthless dictatorship and oppression for 35 years. And you cannot just transform people like this. Uh, and people will not, or even political blocs will not, uh, overnight will become democratic forces or political forces in Iraq. I think that is uh, one of the major reasons why there was a fair, a short-sightedness on the part of Iraqi political leaders. They, they concentrated on their benefit, on their very short-sighted and narrow vision of their own interests and the interests of their own parties or communities uh, without looking at the global and wider vision for the whole country. Mina El-Arabi, editor-in-chief of The National, offered similar reflections, but this time on the incentives and challenges faced by representatives from across Iraq as they politically engaged in Baghdad. So I think it, what happened is that those who went to Baghdad, those who thought they can go and work with the new setup that was put up, they quickly realized that unless they started branding themselves according to sectarian and ethnic lines, But what happened after 2003 is that it wasn't about that. It was what piece of the cake can I carve out for myself and whoever I claim to represent. So I think when the Maslawis went, most of the people I know who got involved, and not just Maslawis, by the way, there are are people from different parts of Iraq, 
who stepped away. The difference with most of this, nobody else stayed. They all withdrew. Omar, through 2005, what's the situation back in Mosul? Jihadism has become the face of the city. And those people who saw the fall of Saddam as an opportunity to bring democracy to Mosul, I mean, they lost faith in everything and they withdraw again. It is understandable. I, I can understand why they withdraw. The situation was almost impossible because the momentum that had shifted beyond the uh, uh, tipping point. So by end of 2005, Mosul was, and I can say, by end of 2005, Mosul was the city of jihadism. Of course, another significant factor in momentum shifting beyond that tipping point was the jihadis' assassination campaigns targeting Mosul's Islamists. Around 2005-2006 was the first wave of assassinations that targeted Islamists. These were the same people who were sitting with them in mosques and preparing sort of this Islamic takeover of Minoist society under the Ba'ath regime during the faith campaign. They were now sworn enemies, um, and and this is why this is why that sense of democracy failed in Mosul. It's why jihadists were stronger because they used the intimidation tactic of assassination. It's also why there were no other comp- competitors. The Islamists were ready for elections. They kind of self devoured themselves because of their ideology, which at the end of the day is intolerant and was doomed to lead to this kind of conflict. But they left no room for others. What had up to that point? been a disorganized jihadist movement in Mosul, there were dozens of different groups and factions operating in the city. Now it is well organized. And who was on top? Of course, it was Al-Qaeda in Wadi Rafidain or Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It would soon start to call itself the Islamic State of Iraq. I believe that there are two big reasons why they became the uh, dominant group in, in, in Mosul, why, why Islamic State or Al-Qaeda at that time became the dominant group in Mosul. Uh, reason one, politics. They built allegiances with other groups, relations with the tribes, and they recruited. They tried to understand the weaknesses of their enemies, and they were very successful in this. They, they tried to exploit them while looking to understand their enemy's strengths. Two, they had no limits whatsoever with all the meaning of this word. They had no limits whatsoever. They attacked everyone, which set a state of fear that everyone is afraid of them. Therefore, they rose to the top and many other groups just melted down. I mean, uh, they, they had to join them because they were afraid of them. The peak for the group at this stage comes actually about a year later with the establishment of its so-called Islamic State of Iraq. But Zakawi didn't live long enough to witness that announcement. Last night in Iraq, United States military forces killed the terrorists al Zarqawi. Zarqawi's death is a severe blow to al-Qaeda. The recent news of the successful joint U.S.-Iraqi strike against Abu Mazhab al-Zarqawi 
clearly indicates that our investments and those of our partners are meeting with some success. Although our Cowie's capture is reason to rejoice, we must be cautioned not to be overly optimistic. The group's method to establish an Islamic State is really, at its core, its method of insurgency, which aims to achieve two interconnected goals. The first is to implement a system of control, to use violence, politics and governance to not just control the population and territory, but outcompete their adversaries. At the same time, it's also trying to implement a system of meaning by disseminating propaganda designed to shape how the population understands what is going on and why. So if we look back to 2003 and 2004, the group under Zakawi's leadership is using unconventional strategies like terrorist attacks and guerrilla governance activities. Fast forward to 2006, it is now calling itself the Islamic State of Iraq and trying to present itself in a very conventional way, as a state. Here is how the Islamic State of Iraq tried to justify itself in a document titled About the Birth of the Islamic State of Iraq. After more than three years of jihad in Iraq and with help from God, the Mujahideen were able to reach a suitable level of capability and organization in military, administrative, economic, and media fields. They have reached a level which they have not reached before. That is a gift from God to them, and a historic opportunity which they must exploit and invest in performing the most important Islamic duties in this age by establishing the anticipated Islamic State. The Islamic State represents a great vital framework. It is important for our listeners to understand that the Islamic State of Iraq in 2006 and 2007, it is nothing like it was in 2014. There are ministries in name, but there are no physical government offices. There is no physical bureaucracy as such for providing government services. It is essentially a state, a conventional government in name only. But in practice, it is still largely engaging in guerrilla governance activities. Omar, how would you describe the so-called Islamic State of Iraq in Mosul? It is important to remember the circumstances in Mosul through 2006 and 2007. Iraqi forces were in the city fighting the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Qaeda. During this period, the city was being contested. It wasn't under total control. While fighting, the Islamic State of Iraq was running an underground shadow government in Mosul. They were extorting money from people and businesses to collect what they call zakat or taxes. This was their financial system. The Islamic State of Iraq also tried to implement its legal and justice system. People would be arrested, punished, and even executed for breaking its laws. There was an administration responsible for the paperwork, keeping records and monitoring the flow of information and resources. When I look back now, I think that what the Islamic State of Iraq did in 2006 and 2007 was lay the foundations for their future. Whether they knew it or not, they were building the relationships, governance, practices, and networks that would help it survive. But at that time, the main thing I remember was that they were brutal. You cannot imagine the brutality of their rule. The Islamic State of Iraq imposed themselves on us. Russia al who was working in Mosul at the time, shared a harrowing story of her experiences with the Islamic State of Iraq during this period. 
because it's very personal. That's when I received my death threat in 2007. I was uh, working on a contract base in a, in a public sector office. I prefer not to say exactly which one. And I got a phone call. Um, and I, I, when I answered, it was a strange number. And I, I had changed my phone at the time. I had a new phone. So I thought this was a phone that maybe someone I knew. I just hadn't saved the name. So when I answered, someone replied in a, um, in a rural accent, an accent that was not Muslawi. It sounded like it was from Talafar, Sinjar, someplace that was in the outskirts. And he said, you're Russia. And I, I didn't think of hanging up. I was too frightened. I said, yes. And he said, you work here in this place. And we're demanding that you quit your job. You have only one week to go back to your office, collect your belongings, never show your face there again. Or we swear we will behead you and we will record it. And everyone you know will see the video. And then he started basically scorning me, like, how dare you work in an office like this? You have no shame. We're protecting your honor. Uh, something, you know, within these lines. Um, and that was 2007. He said, when he introduced himself, he didn't say his name, but he said, we're from the state. So it was the Islamic State of Iraq uh, at the time. Um, I know six women who were assassinated in the very same place that I worked in before and after I left. These assassinations, just like other forms of violence used by the Islamic State of Iraq, were driven by a strategic purpose. Yes, to intimidate, to terrorize, but at least of equal importance, to weaken their opponents by killing their adversaries, most influential, their most important and impactful people, but also allowing those who were sources of instability and corruption in the society to remain in place. You feel that they were targeting the, the hardworking core of Muslim society, people who were very honest, decent. They were not attacking the corrupt people. They needed those corrupt people because they were giving them influence. They were able to buy them um, and, and bribe them to create influence within these offices and the bureaucracy. But for people who did not give them these opportunities, they needed to go. Despite their fears, the people turned against them. And when they did, the Islamic State of Iraq collapsed. Next time on Mosul and the Islamic State. Surge of ideas did actually matter much more than the surge of forces. I was not convinced that we had solved any of the major issues facing the local community and the security forces that we supported. They transformed the prisons in Mosul and the rest of Iraq into terrorism training camps. The winner of this war will be the one who can prepare and plan for the period after American troops withdraw. It is the little details that most people do not know that will always trouble me.